Good morning, and welcome to the first church service for 2019, and if I lift the table while that's there, there will be problems. I've got good news and two bits of bad news. Um, the good news is that for many of you, it's back to the routine of work, probably for some, most of them, for this week, maybe Wednesday. And you get sick and tired, don't you, of having nothing to do on holiday and no routine and no discipline. Well, you're lucky. The good news is to start again. <laughs> the bad news, two bits of bad news. The first one is that there's only about 320 shopping days till Christmas. <laughs> right? The second piece of bad news is that Brad told me with due respect to my fatherhood of him, that, Dad, you've got to be finished by 11 o'clock. The bad news is my watch isn't working. <laughs> so if someone down the back, as we get towards the last few seconds, could go like this, you know, I can't see that clock from here, Mark, like this, you know, and then the la when the last one comes up, I'll know it's time to stop. Right, a welcome... It's very hard to know what to try and talk about at the start of a year. And I wondered, what shall I do? And as I was driving my car the other day, I heard two people talking at different occasions. The first one was a guy called Reverend Glyn Cardi. And he was speaking about the futility of believing that Jesus Christ was coming back. Many of you may know him as the... Um, minister who in charge of St. Matthew's Church in, in right in the city. The second one I listened to is they were interviewing a man who's just turned 100. His name is Professor Lloyd Gearing, and he was ridiculing the resurrection of Christ. So I thought as we start a new year, I want to start off reiterating my firm convictions about the resurrection. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, you needn't return to it, or needn't turn to it, because before I start, I just want to make it very clear that if you want to wave your things because it's so warm, please feel free to do so. If you want to go and sit by the doors, do that. If you want to get a cup of water and pour it over your head, do that. But stay cool, okay? It's a terrible temperature in here. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm just going to read a few verses. From verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, my faith is futile, I am still in my sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who, who have fallen asleep. In other words, the kingpin doctrine of the Bible for those who love Christ is the fact that he died and that he rose again. His death is meaningless apart from his resurrection. Having stated that, I want to ask, what do you think is the most lonely place on earth? And I'm not talking geographically. I think one of the, and I want to talk about three of them this morning, one of the loneliest places on earth is standing at the graveside of someone you love. I remember the loneliness that I experienced when we buried my mum. The maternal, what do you call it, 
the maternal atmosphere of our house had gone. Another one I remember was in 1985, I was working at Westpac Bank looking after their tax problems and the boss called me in one day and said, Max, we want you to go to London for three months. I said, no way. Like it, I did. Um, we want you to go to London for three months and after a lot of hassling, we eventually got it all arranged and I remember flying out, saying goodbye to Ruth and the family at home, flying to Los Angeles, spending a night there, getting the plane next day. I still remember looking down on Greenland. I'd never flown further than Australia before this. And eventually we landed at Heathrow. It was a Friday afternoon. I was met by two people from Westpac Bank. Hello, we are this and we are that, and I'm Max, and we made our introductions. They took me for an hour's trip through London out to a little area called New Eltham. They took me into my Westpac flat. I took my bags in and popped them in, and they came in and said, we've, we, we put a few things in the fridge for you, a loaf of bread and a pound of butter and a bit of this and a bit of that. And they said goodbye, and they went back to work. And I still had this jet lag thing, and I was feeling incredibly lonely. Went to bed that night and woke up in the morning feeling even more lonely. Saturday, I had no vehicle, didn't know where I was, had nothing much to do, so that I know I'll ring Ruth. I rang my dear wife, I don't know what time of the day it was for them, but she answered. We spoke for a while, and after she hung up the phone, I felt even more lonely. Didn't help one iota. I want to talk about people, three people from the Bible, who lived for a wee while, in a lonely chasm. Loneliness is corrosive. It eats away at every part of our personality. It winds its vine around the heart and we can't seem to see the beauty of a new day. Our dreams are broken and gone. There was a lady called Mary Magdalene and she was blinded by her tears. Somewhere along the eastern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus went up into a mountainside and was followed by a huge crowd. There were 5,000 men. When you had women and children, I have no idea how many there were, but I suspect into the teens. And the disciples witnessed Jesus feeding these, this huge crowd with five loaves and two fishes. After he had fed them, he went a little further north through the town of Tiberias. This is on the western coast of that teardrop lake called Galilee and into the little town of Magdala. There he met a lady who was controlled totally by demons. He cast the demons out of her and she became a devoted follower of the Jewish carpenter. But now the carpenter was dead. Mary, along with one other woman called Mary, watched the spectacle of the crucifixion. They witnessed the Roman soldiers spread eagle the arms of Jesus upon a cross as they nailed him to the crossbeam. They then pulled his feet together and overlapped and nailed through his feet. The two Marys heard Jesus utter seven different sayings from the cross, such as, Father, please forgive them, and it is finished and today you will be with man in paradise, and so on. But eventually they saw the head of Jesus sag, and they knew he had drawn his last breath. 
Hell was victorious and it started to raise its glasses and propose a toast to the Calvary victory. The dreams of many who had pinned all their hopes on a new era for Israel, a new kingdom, the release from the maniacal grip of Rome, those dreams also perished on top of that hill called Golgotha. That rocky outcrop called Golgotha was located in the garden where there was also a new tomb, hewn out of the rock face. Can we have the first picture up there just please? Hewn out of the rock face, that's not it. That's down at Music Point, just up the way. It was in that tomb, owned by a man named Joseph, that the anointed and wrapped body of the dead Jesus was buried. The drama was over, and the drama now was fairly commonplace, this crucifixion thing. It was common. It was a dime a dozen in Jerusalem and the outskirts of the Roman Empire. But once again, Roman had asserted her authority that she was not to be messed with. You don't upset Roman rule without paying a price. Some lingered and some started to drift away from the top of that little hill. But Mary and the other Mary settled down for the long haul and they sat down opposite the tomb. Loneliness now gripped particularly Mary Magdalene, I would think. As night progressed across the city, the two ladies eventually ceased their vigil, packed their few belongings, and in the silence of their loss, they went home to bed. But the morning immediately after the Sabbath, Mary of Magdala and that other Mary woke early. Dawn hadn't yet spread her wings across the city, and it was still dark, and carrying their lanterns, they made their way back to the crypt where the body of Jesus lay. And as they made their journey, they, they discussed with each other, how are we going to roll away the stone? As they got close, they thought the stone had already been rolled away. For you see, they wanted to anoint the body of Jesus. The Marys went back and told Peter and John, the, the, the stone's been rolled away and we didn't go in. So Peter and John ran. John outran Peter. Peter got there and went straight past John and into the tomb and, and saw the clothes lying there on the shelf and immediately went back to the other disciples. And the other Mary went back too, but Mary Magdalene stayed there. And the Bible simply records in John 20 verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. She eventually looked inside and saw two figures sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, of where Jesus would have lain. And they said, what's, what's, what's wrong? What are you crying for? She said, well, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And then in her tears, she heard someone coming behind her and it was the gardener. So she thought. And he asked her the same question. Why are you crying? And I wonder whether she thought to herself, don't you understand? I'm looking for the corpse of Jesus and I can't find it. I can't find the corpse of Jesus. 
The first three Gospels of the, Old, of the New Testament are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they record, record nothing about the second character I want to talk about. His name was Thomas. They record nothing but the fact that he joined Jesus as he called the disciples. It's only when you get into John that you find two other instances of Thomas being mentioned. And they give a little insight into this character, Thomas. In John chapter 10, we have the account of the Jews attempting to catch hold of Jesus and stone him to death. And it said they went after him and they were going to cast him off a clifftop and this is right in Jerusalem itself and they were going to kill him. Jesus escaped from their grasp and he went on his way. And in John chapter 11, the following chapter, we have the account of the death of Lazarus. And as the news arrived to Jesus with his disciples, Jesus tarried for two more days and then said, let's go back to Judea. The Bible doesn't record it this way, but I can imagine the disciples saying, are you nuts, Jesus? Why go back to Judea? That's the very place where a matter of 48 hours ago, they tried to stone you to death. Why go back to Judea? But among the disciples, only one seemed to show a sense of loyalty. It was Thomas. He said, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was thinking, I know Jesus will do what he needs to do. And I'm prepared to stick with this man, even if I die with him. Thomas was a loyal, guy, a loyal character. Thomas said, I will stick with Jesus through thick and thin. And I think... Whenever you talk about doubting Thomas, put into your mind the fact that he was loyal, totally, absolutely, completely, 100% loyal. The others said, don't go, Jesus. You'll be walking into a death trap. Thomas says, it doesn't matter. Let's go, even if we die with him. Then... Thomas is mentioned one other time apart from the doubting incident and apart from after the resurrection when he and Peter were out fishing with the other disciples. The only other incident mentioned in John about Thomas was when Jesus was, was speaking to them from John 14. Let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me, etc. And then he said to them, you know the way where I am going. Now, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Jesus said, you know the way I, where I'm going, and you know the way. And Thomas was the one who said, hang on, Lord. We don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Are you going down to Bethlehem, or are you going further north? We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Because Jesus said, you know the way that I'm going. So not only was Thomas a very loyal man, Thomas was very, of a very logical man. Logic ruled his life. And it came into, for, into the play when we read about Thomas doubting the resurrection of Christ. But I want to read from you, and I've got it written down here, and I haven't got it up on the, on the slide. A few verses from Mark 16. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. 
She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, now I've got red letters, red words, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they, and, and they went and told it to the rest, red letters, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because, red letters again, they did not believe him. You see, none of these disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. It's not really right to focus in on Thomas and say he was the one. None of them believed. And in fact, Luke's account says their words, that is, the words about him being raised from the dead, seemed to them like nonsense. Thomas was no different. And one of the loneliest places to be is not only at the, at the graveside of someone you love, but to be in the minority when you know others don't know what they're talking about. Thomas was blinded by his logic. Mary was blinded by her tears. And Cleopas was blinded by his shattered dreams. Emmaus was an ancient town approximately 11 to 12 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem's present-day location. And two people trod their way that day. Now, before they trod there, only a few days before, they had seen the miraculous sight of Jesus mounted on a donkey, walking into Jerusalem, people casting palm leaves down and casting their clothes and shouting, Hosanna! And within a little while, Jesus was on a cross dying. But when they had seen Jesus entering the city on the back of a donkey, the dreams inside their hearts started to grow. And they dreamed of a great empire called Israel, throwing off the shackles of Rome, and a king seated upon a throne of David that rebuilt Jerusalem to a better place than it's ever been before. And Jesus was going to be on that throne. And Cleopas and his friend, whoever he or she was, were part of those who believed Jesus was about to be made king of the Jews in every respect. And all that flowed from that. Cleopas had heard all the words that flowed from Jesus, I would imagine, because he lived on the outskirts of the disciple band. The words of Jesus were like water to the thirsty, forgiveness to the guilty and deliverance to the captives. And on the basis of all that he had seen and heard, he allowed dreams to take root. But now, now Jesus was dead, his corpse was in a tomb, and everything was over and done with. And they made the lonely journey 11 kilometers from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. And as they trod, every footstep they put down on the flagstones re-echoed inside their hearts, it's hopeless, it's gone. And a lonely place is at a graveside of someone you love who's died. A lonely place is to be all on your own in your convictions. Another lonely place is to have your dreams broken and shattered, and I suspect we've all had that on occasions throughout our lives. And the broken shards of their dream lay scattered across the floor of their heart. And as he and their friend trod that lonely road, someone came alongside. 
the three of them started to talk together. And all that clear pass believed was spelt out in just a few words. We had hoped that it would have been he who to redeem Israel. Now look what's happened. And the stranger said to them, why don't you believe though all that's spoken in the prophets? And he opened the scriptures to them and explained. And they eventually got to Emmaus and the two men, the two guys, the two people, the lady and the man, I don't know who they were, except for Cleopas, said, come in and enjoy a meal with us. And so he did. Let's go back to Mary. Mary, what are you crying for? She said, I can't find his corpse. And Jesus said, the gardener said, Mary. Now, I don't know what it was, how it was, how she came to recognize the form of the transformed gardener into the person of Christ. But I want to tell you it was this. It was the tone of the master's voice. Let's go to Thomas. He was with the disciples and he said, I will not believe, I'm a man of logic, until I see, I can't believe. And Jesus stood there and said, Thomas, put forward your hand and touch me and into my side and don't be faithless but believe. Whereas with Mary it was the tone of the master's voice. With Thomas it was the testimony of the master's body. He actually saw the nail prints and faith blossomed. The two on the road to Emmaus, they went in and they sat down at their meal. And Jesus gave thanks for the bread that was put on the table before them. And as he put out his hands to break the bread, the nail prints became evident. With Mary, it was the tone of the master's voice. With Thomas, it was the testimony of the master's body. With Cleopas, it was the touch of the master's hand. And for each of those three people, Something about the resurrected Christ went straight to their heart, straight to their conscience, straight to their mind, and faith blossomed again because Jesus was alive. Could you just put up the second picture? Got that yesterday. Come see the place where the Lord lay. He is not here. He is risen. Now relating this to our lives through 19, or 2019, I want, to, I want to try and relate the tone of the Master's voice to the need for prayer. I remember Brad sitting up here a long time ago saying and confessing that prayer was one of the hardest disciplines in his life. He got that from his dad. Prayer is tough. My mind seems to wander so easily but to hear the tone of the master's voice and to have a delinquent prayer life means the doubts about the resurrected Christ operating in your life will take root. Attend to prayer. The testimony of the master's body I take to be communion. I've heard it said on several occasions through my life to be a Christian, you don't have to attend church, and they're right, you don't. But isn't it so good to meet with those who love the Master and week after week or month after month come up the front and take just a morsel of bread and a sip of wine and remember again 
the price that he paid. Prayer and breaking bread and wine add luster to the resurrection of Christ. And then the touch of the master's hand for Cleopas. Not so much the touch of his hand here, but as they walked that road to Emmaus, Jesus opened to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And dear people, as we set foot not to Emmaus, but to a distant place called December 2019, make much of prayer, much of communion, and much of reading the word of God, for that shall enliven the reality of the resurrected Christ in yours and my life. Am I going for time? I can't see that. Is it about 25 to 11? I've finished. But I want to leave with you one verse from Acts chapter 2. This was the very early stage of the resurrection of the birth of the church of Christ. Christ had gone back to glory, and I want to talk about that next Sunday. But the church was now starting to grow. And we read this. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's call that Bible reading. And to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They got the mixture right. If you doubt and follow along that silly thinking of Professor Lloyd Gearing that the resurrection of Christ is a nullity and doesn't mean a thing, stay with prayer, stay with your Bible, stay with communion, stay with fellowship, and 2019 will be a God-blessed place. Christ has risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Let's pray. Our Father, so many events in our lives, so many losses, so many seeming cruelties, so many things we don't understand seem to erode our conviction and belief about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Father, grant to us, we pray today, and in the months and weeks that lie ahead till you come back, Feed our convictions by looking into your word, by meeting with you in prayer, by fellowshipping with those who break bread and drink wine together, that Christ indeed is risen. Father, take us to the place and show us the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ. We love you, we honour you, we adore you in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Max.